Welcome to episode 41 of Critical Transit. You can find out more about the show and my work at criticaltransit.com. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Critical Transit. And uh, I'm pleased to be back today uh, after a little bit of a delay. Um, I was working a lot, and so props to you who uh, work full-time schedules and still do advocacy on the side. Um, it's, uh, it takes a lot of work. So uh, on today's show, we're going to be talking about rail safety in light of the recent Metro North derailment in uh, uh, upstate New York, uh, Yonkers, I believe. Um, okay, it's not upstate. I, I fine. Um, this is something that I, I joke about with people sometimes, you know, with upstate, um, you, you know, when you go up in New York City, you think upstate is like anything north of the Bronx. Um, but, uh, you know. People who live in Yonkers and even Albany will get very upset by that. So this is <laughs> sort of one of those reminders. Um, I didn't even mean it that way. Um, but on today's show, we have. Uh, I'm very excited to have uh, my my girl's friend from Boston, Mark Ibunya, who is a writer about transit and a big transit fan. He he writes at Transit Matters, which you can find at uh, transitmatters.info. And uh, he has done a lot of work, especially in Boston, where he now lives, to uh, improve communication and operations at uh, the transit agency in, in Boston, MBTA. And, um, you know, that's, that's not an easy task. He's done a lot of advocacy from the outside, um, and, and he, he knows more about transit than even many transit people that I know. And uh, I certainly learned a lot from, from today's conversation. And so we're going to be talking about uh, rail safety and, and transit safety in general, uh, everything from you know employee hours to uh, you know signals to positive train control, uh, funding, maintenance, the whole the whole deal. And uh, so I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think this is uh, this is you're going to learn a lot, and uh, as, as I did. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to without further ado, I'm going to uh, play that conversation for you. Um, I guess we'll take a quick break and then uh, we'll come back on the other side with Mark Ibunya. Just a small editor's note, there was a, a few audio problems, rather, that resulted in a couple slight pauses of a few seconds or more at uh, various points in the interview, uh, but no content was missed. Um, Mark Ibunya is still wonderful, so um, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, this is the reality of uh, living in different parts of the country and recording interviews on Skype. So welcome back to Critical Transit. On today's show, I am joined by Mark Ibunya. He is a transit activist and advocate in Boston, and uh, he writes Transit Matters, uh, transitmatters.info, and he is a uh, somebody I, I've known over the years, um, being active in trying to improve transit in Boston, which is uh, not not really that easy. So, um, Mark, thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, Jeremy, it's glad uh, it's good to be here. Cool. Um, so we, the the main reason that I wanted to have you on the show, um, and uh, you know, we'll we'll get to talking about Boston a little bit. And the main reason we we uh, wanted to talk about the uh, Metro North derailment that happened uh, last week, and uh, it's just a quick recap of the the Metro North derailment. There was a uh, train that was coming in. This was uh, in the Hudson Line, uh, Metro North. Metro North is one of the big commuter railroads in in the country. Um, it's New York has three, the Long Island Railroad, New Jersey Transit, and uh, Metro North. And it's like, uh, you know, Chicago has Metro and Philly has SEPTA, these ones that go into the suburbs, like uh, Park and Rise and stuff like that. And so, you know, but these are very busy, very long trains. 
and uh, so the A-car train was coming uh, southbound. It was approaching a curve. Um, the train was apparently traveling at 82 miles per hour. There was a 70-mile-per-hour zone and then a 30-mile-per-hour zone on a curve. And uh, so the train derailed, and uh, the first car narrowly missed landing in the water. And uh, so there's been there's been a um, this is the not the first derailment of the year. There was a an incident in Connecticut uh, in May, and then there was a, a very minor derailment outside Grand Central in I believe July. And so um, this so you know uh, four four people died, and a number of people were were injured, and the train operator apparently told investigators that he uh he dozed off uh before the incident and you know woke up but it was too late to uh to stop the train um so i thought uh maybe we sh- could talk about some of the some of the what this sort of means in the in the grand scheme of things and you know if we could learn some lessons from from this incident and and the others that happened earlier in the year um so i don't know, maybe maybe you want to start with uh, some initial thoughts that you have Right. So um the the it, it's funny because the uh the Metro North Railroad uh is actually fairly young compared to all of the other commuter railroads uh that you mentioned. Um the Long Island Railroad has uh dates all the way back to uh the years the, the days of of Penn Central. Um and they owe their actually their electrification to that. And um I, I think uh that that's that really kind of tells the story of um, technological investment and innovation, um, and what does that mean for the railroad operations, and in particular railroad safety and security? Uh, this, I mean, R- Metro North um, this year has had more accidents, and 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 in this pr- latest incident, um, its first fatal accident in its i believe what is it 30 year history um that uh, and and the, the story to be told out of all of this uh the lesson to to pull out of all of these different incidents um is that these are all completely preventable incidents um looking back at the uh, actually the other week um uh, i looked back at the the video footage that um the ntsb actually uploaded to their new youtube channel um about the metro north accident that happened on the northeast corridor on the new haven line um and actually an an, an amtrak train with a camera mounted on the front saw the 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 track break uh the break in the track um and the poor rail, poor, poor uh road conditions before uh the action accident actually happened so 50 minutes before an amtrak train came across those tracks um, on an adjacent line and and captured that and uh, I mean, what does that mean like could could we have seen this? Could this track circuit have been uh, detectable or rather would a track circuit have detected that track break uh, mm-hmm. before an accident actually would have happened and we should say um, quickly that um, you know the that that crash when it was in in May when a train derailed and hit a train going the opposite direction it was it, it appears to be uh, blamed on a on a broken rail at this point right. Right. broken rail due to deteriorating road conditions so that's mm-hmm. i mean that's that's uh that's one thing that's that's an infrastructure thing and then this this particular instance uh with the driver dozing off um the biggest the biggest problem is that uh the driver um did not have the 
safety devices in his cab. It was a push-pull configuration. Basically, the locomotive, as, as everybody is saying, the locomotive was at the back of the train pushing uh, the train in the direction. But uh, basically, all of the controls are duplicated at the front of this specially designed passenger car with a, with a driver cab on the front. Uh, so everything is duplicated except for the one safety device that would have stopped the situ- uh that would have prevented this um which is uh well, actually there's a number of safety devices that could have been uh could have prevented this but in particular one that metro north has installed in the the genesis engine that was leading this uh that was pushing this train um a relatively new new locomotive that had a safety feature that ev- after a, over a certain interval um the the train uh makes this very, very loud alert sound, and you have to push a button to acknowledge the fact that you are awake, you are present, um, and this has been found to be more uh, of a failsafe than the dead man switch, which in this case uh, obviously failed to stop the train, even though the, the driver was very much on his way to sl- asleep and still able to apply the force needed to continue driving the yeah, train that's, that's the to its where, eventual 80 miles per hour. Yeah, that's the thing where if uh, you have to hold on to the lever in a certain way, right. uh, you know, have a grip on it, and if you lose your grip, then the train will, will stop. Theoretically, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, in, I mean, in this case, the, the driver, you know, fell asleep, and there was nothing to there was nothing to stop the train or slow the train. And, and uh, many railroads now do, even New York City subway has this um, system where if you if the train is exceeding the, the speed requirement or... Um, is is you know goes through a red signal or something the you know the the system will break the train uh, before it go, gets to the point where it could crash into something else and then you know if you're the driving the train you have to explain what what you were doing not following the signal or whatever and so right. uh, but I think so I think this didn't have this train didn't have uh, this mechanism although maybe may, possibly it had it in the in the other direction which is which is weird but I think I think this speaks to the, some of the funding issues that that we've been having because. Uh, the the Federal Railroad Administration, which uh, oversees the freight and, uh, and these long distance commuter railroads, uh, regulated they, they mandated, in fact, that uh, positive train control, which is some, which is this a type of system like this, um, needs to be installed by 2015. Now, of course, they they didn't fund this mandate, uh, which which I guess we can talk about. But um, you know, the fact that we know how to how to do this and we know how to you know, if we had implemented that, this this incident wouldn't have happened, and yet, you know, we can barely find funding to, you know, continue the service that we have. Um, you know, we got the broken rail in the, in the previous incident in May, and uh, you know, because, you know, we didn't have, you know, I mean, maybe this could be blamed on, a, on an oversight. Maybe it can be blamed on that. You know, we didn't have procedures in place to uh, to, to to find these things, but. Especially with the PTC, it's like, why, you know, why why are we not putting forward the money to get this installed? Um, I I think I think that largely comes from uh, this a, a basic mental change um, over the over the over the centuries in um, what state of the art is in transportation and how that's diverged from. In, in the U.S. from the rest of the world. The, with the U.S., railroad technologies used to be very much in sync with what was going on elsewhere. Now today, um, 
you have uh, in England, you have um, these these exact types of things where uh, over a certain interval, um, you must respond to uh, to an alarm as you're going through a, a yellow block. Otherwise, um, you, the train will automatically stop. Assuming that you have not responded uh, and the driver is incapacitated, incapacitated. So um, there, there are these, there are these technologies, these very basic safe technologies that are seen as um, appropriately. Uh, oh, um, if I, according to some, that that these are not necessary, um, or that they're too expensive for the for the for the uh, the benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 all of the freight railroads that complained that oh this would cost money, boatloads of money, all basically say, stated uh, figures in in the uh, in the billions, single billions, not. Uh, uh, I think cumulatively maybe tens of billions, but these are all these, these are all costs that are within that are that they have in cash reserves. Uh, whereas commuter railroads like uh, the MBTA in Boston, like the Metro North, New Jersey Transit, uh, Long Island Railroad in the New York City area, uh, they they barely they basically have to fight for their funding every single year, and their capital budgets consist of. Uh, tens of billions of dollars of of needs and wants, um, but somehow these these safety systems don't make them to the top of of their lists, uh, um, and so generally year over year over year they get unfunded. Um, where is this money going to come from? And and that's the biggest question: is where, uh, what are we what are we going to prioritize? And and uh, I guess funding is one of the biggest issues. Is uh, the reason why this so the reason why this this mandate came about was in was that awful uh, accident on the um uh in i, I believe it was la um right, the right. Yeah, the 2008 so crash yeah southern california this was a this was a, a driver that was texting actually and uh, that's right. it was signal for that reason and then you know crashed into uh, i believe it was a freight train that's right yeah that that is the that is the so that's that's another thing that is the ultimate um Worst case scenario that these trains have been built for, um, but that that harkens back to a time. This this rule comes back from a time before there were computer technologies and high speed trains that 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 needed these advanced warning systems and and computerized systems that could calculate a safe braking curve because the driver literally can't see far enough. To the you know the emergency stop distance, um, if he sees something on the track, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, while we don't run high speed trains necessarily that fast, I mean a cell certainly um, to winds its way through through relatively tight corridors, um, bends that you can't see around. Uh, you know why why was this? Why was this the uh, the genesis of of a new new mandate? Well, because uh, we we also realize that it's not enough to simply have trains that will crash into freight trains. Um, we need to also make sure that trains don't collide at all. It's not like it's not like cars that are going down the highway um, down non fixed you know tracks. You can you can do whatever you want with the car. You can go where you want with the car, and that's where the biggest danger is. That's why that's why cars have such high crash rates. But trains are fixed on tracks, and they have very predictable locations. Um, so uh, it's 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 almost it's almost shocking that it it took a, a, a national disaster like that and and continued disasters after that to require uh 
these types of these types of funds and it's actually really really unfortunate that ever since 2008 in the public realm these really preventable accidents especially uh even in DC where uh recently there was an accident um I think that was what is it 2011 2010 where DC has a track detection system and the trains are run by computer, uh, but somehow the computer wasn't just programmed to to say, well, well uh, the train went into a portion that I can't see where the train is because the circuit's broken, uh, so I'll just assume that it's empty and I'll just run the trains uh, normally. So it's something something is something is amiss. We we are we are we are we want to be safe, um, but for somehow for some reason that um, safe safe comes at a so safety has a cost, but we're not willing to pay that. Uh, and, and, and at some point, somebody's going to have to step up onto the national scene um, and, and really say, well, how ludicrous is this, that, that we have these trains um, that are, you know, yes, they're, they're incredibly safe. And, but the public, um, I, I'm worried about the public actually losing faith in, 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 in railroad safety if if major things aren't done and the and the NTSB has repeatedly said for the past for the past several decades we've been recommending PTC and nobody has listened. Um in fact he even uh I think the the, the NTS the NTSB um inspector on the scene at the uh, Metro North Railroad crash uh <laughs> very very clearly said that during the uh, during his press conference. Yeah, and it's it's um, and I'm not convinced that transit agencies, you know, aren't aren't interested in it. I think it's more of an issue of just, you know, when you have to prioritize, you have to make you have to figure out what's a what's a priority based on you know all these critical needs, and you can only fund half this critical list. And it's like, well, okay, you know, that's a big project and it's going to have to get put off. And I and I know one example in um in Boston, I know that the MBTA really wants to to implement something on. Uh, or at least they seem like they really want to implement something on uh, the Green Line light rail, to which is, is a very congested light rail with multiple branches. And there, there have been at least two, probably three or four crashes in the, in the past few years. Right. And um, you know, and I know that they're looking to implement um, positive train control or something similar. And um, but they're not able to with the volume of trains that they have there. And it's like it's one of those things that sort of you need. It's like, oh well, you know, we need to really do something. It's gonna it disrupt the line. We need to, you know, maybe even upgrade the line and more capacity. It's like we don't even want to think about that. Let's just like, it's and it just sits. It just and there's you know nobody's putting up the money for it. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's that. So that technology that they want to install is something called CBTC, computer based train control. In fact, the the L train in New York City um, is the most prominent North. Well, I guess the most most prominent um, example in a centuries-old subway system having um, moderate success. Occasionally, apparently, uh, the, the L <laughs> does go down quite a bit because of the uh, um, issues with the fiber optic cables. But that's that's the that's the idea is is um, ripping out all of the copper and putting in very um, very robust digital signal lines where you can know the exact position of trains and ultimately the hope is ultimately um, not only removing the the human uh, well not removing but <laughs> reducing the human the human um, uh, element in terms of in terms of um, accidents um, where trains are hitting each other, but also um, getting more throughput, 
uh, as you said, yeah, the long, uh, not long Island Road, sorry, the, 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 the Green Line is the most heavily used light rail line in the United States. Um, no other light rail line um, uh, is, is, is as heavily ridden. Um, it almost goes as, it's, <laughs> it's almost up there in terms of how uh, heavily packed it is as the, the 456 train that runs along uh, Lexington Avenue in, uh, in Manhattan. Uh, and that, that's actually the most heavily used subway line in the U.S. Um, but, but, but basically, the biggest issue is um, there's actually a report out there where the MBTA sought uh, an engineer to an engineering firm to uh, to spec out a CBTC uh, setup, and basically they found that um, without a full investment, they would actually lose capacity on the Green Line. But they would get an incredibly safe Green Line, where suddenly also you would be able to have tracking. Um, which would also uh, be reflective of um, coordination from op- operations during breakdowns, if that happens. Um, and also from a passenger perspective, from a customer perspective, being able to know when the trains are coming um, and being able to plan um, your commute around that and possibly abating some of the, the crush loads where you get uh, you know, peop- delays and, and uncomfortable, uncomfortable situations um, where you're standing right on top of the next person when there's a train directly behind it going in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that, and that's, that's, uh, that's a big thing. But safety, going back to safety, uh, the biggest thing is, is that um, there are lots of tight curves. Uh, again, lots of tight curves where you can't look around, and, and if, you, if you blow through them, um, it will be too late by the time you see that obstacle. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of starts and stops, and that significantly reduces the uh, the throughput that the green line can have. Um, but also introduces, but also leaves that safe that critical safety element to the humans. There is no safety system to automatically stop a green line train if it gets too close to another one, um, or if it runs a red light. Um, in in New York, there are physical stops where if the if a if a, if an L train goes too fat too far, um, not only if the if the um, if the uh, computer system fails or if the human fails to stop, um, there are f- physical stops that um, that uh, will hit the train um, t- uh, at a certain part of the 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 the, the, the wheels. Well, not the wheels. The uh, it's a little the lever. That, yeah, yeah, it's a little lever that just basically comes up and it forces all the air to be lost, which yes. apparently stops the train. I don't it, completely understand all this, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, it bleeds the brakes. So, yeah. um, so that's the um, so, so. Where do we go from here? I mean, like, does the and that's and I think I believe that was spec'd out at uh, somewhere between. I don't have that. Sh- I don't have that fe- figure on me, but I, I think it was in the it was in the hundreds of millions of dollars, like uh, pretty much a, a, a procurement of new trains. Um, or a safety system for the green line. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I guess that's why this stuff doesn't really doesn't really get uh, get implemented. Yeah. Um, but I but I, I do want to make the point that um, and and I you know saw a number of people in, in of course you know the media goes to interview people and people are like oh you know I'm going to drive my car tomorrow and it's like well if you're concerned about safety that, that's probably not the, not the way to go. Um, but I, I do want to make the point that um, these these incidents do get a lot of attention because they are very rare. Yes. And uh, you know, in transit as a whole, is is very very safe. And if you if you think about all of the, I mean that that curve, you know that, that we've been talking about here in uh, in in was it Yonkers like or 
Yonkers. 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 Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I mean, this totally. curve has so. been there for you know for decades, and and uh, you know there's never been a crash there before. With, you know, so it's it's the people that are that are doing this. I mean, they're you know transit and transit employees in particular are you know very safety minded, and and I think that uh, I just want to make that point about how transit is is very safe, and you know what we're talking about here is sort of you know that there is some whatever debate. You know, some people do do question is like, okay, how much money do you really want to put into this because uh, you know, I mean, we're, it's already very, very safe. Um, so that's just something to, to throw out there. All right. Um, I mean, even though it is safe, it could always be much safer. And, and because I think by, by merit of the fact that these are very high profile incidents, um, I mean, these, these, these high profile incidents are actually more like the perfect storm of all of the awful things that happen to people on their commutes all put together in one. Um, I mean, the, uh, you know, the delays because of, um, because of a broken rail. Uh, you get a delay because of a broken rail because somebody actually caught it. Um, you get a delay because um, a train went over a red light because somebody caught it. The safety system worked. Um, so it, it's hard to it's hard to really demonstrate that these systems work be, by merit of the fact that when they do work, uh, I mean, just like just like transit, just like just like everything else that that uh, that is a utility in our lives, for better or for worse, when they are when they are working perfectly, um, we don't notice them. Um, we're not necessarily appreciative of, of them, but we we don't notice them, um, and and they drive our lives and they keep our lives they keep us safe. Um, you don't you don't appreciate you, you don't applaud or tweet about um, the air brakes uh, in your train or, or your or your airbags on your car uh, by not going off in your ride because you didn't actually get into an accident or uh, I mean it's 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 really subtle things like that I mean how do you how do you spin that how is that is that the next <laughs> is that the next uh, social uh, social media challenge for transit agencies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, how do you um, talk to really about how safe it uh, is and... get on the bandwagon to advocate for themselves? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's um, the one thing transit agencies just—I mean—just don't do very well, partly by design, and you know because they're they're political agents, they're political entities basically, and they can't—you know—they can't be transit agencies can't be directly advocating for for you know more money or safety systems or anything, and it's it's partly you know they try to outreach the customers, but they're in this very weird position that uh, you know I know we've talked about this before is that there's the you know, transit agencies are always trying to, you know, provide great customer service and, and you know, pr- pr- sort of be everything to everyone. And it's, you know, you, it's a very difficult position. You can't do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. so, it, I mean, it's a thankless job because, again, as I said, you know, you, you, don't, you don't get excited about things that are just working in your life. You don't get excited about, oh, the water, the water turned on in my, in, you know, in my, uh, on my faucet this morning. I was able to take a shower. That wouldn't be a thing unless, like, it was a regular thing that you, oh, uh, you know, nine, uh, five, five to ten, rather, uh, one, uh, one, to, one, to, one to two chance that, that I might not be able to actually take a shower this morning because the plumbing's not working. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't really get excited about that sort of stuff because these are just things that work in our lives. Yeah, unless you, I guess, unless you live in a shitty apartment in New York, like <laughs> I did in that case. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I mean, another thing I wanted to, to bring up is that um, you know that we're not really prepared for these kinds of incidents. In, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't, I don't want to have to be prepared for this stuff, but you know, we're not really prepared to deal with disruptions, and we don't have we don't have any kind of redundancy in our system. And so, when the you know back in, uh, it's going back to May, the May incident at Metro North. I mean, there the line was was wiped out for like a week. 
Um, you know, there was no Amtrak running between Boston and New York. There were no, I mean, that was the Metro North, and the, the agency doesn't have enough buses to, to run buses for everyone. Um, and, you know, if they are, they're running on these congested highways. And so we don't, you know, I, I don't know if this is something that we want to think about, is about how, um, you know, is, like, maybe we should be thinking more about these things, more about having redundancy in our in our networks. Well, I, ideally, we ideally we should want these these systems to not fail, um, and then I think that's I, I think that's a that's a that's a goal that is admirable. But what how at what cost is it to to provide? So, what's the cost differential to provide a near perfect system that doesn't break down versus a system that is redundant enough that if it does break down, you know. We can we can still get you where you need to go, because um, uh, in some way it is it is redundant enough to move people uh, um, uh, on the highway and shuttle buses, but at the same time that provides not not nearly the same throughput as these uh, shiny new uh, M nines that uh, or rather M eights that they just you know that they just bought. I mean uh, that are actually increasing capacity because they have they they bought. They bought more trains than were than than were there before, uh, and these trains are even more reliable than the old, uh, um, I believe it M twos and M fours that they had uh, on their on their commuter railroad. So um, even though they've replaced that equipment, yeah, it's this, uh, suddenly uh, when the line is out, that equipment means nothing. Um, so so how do you? I mean, building robust networks, I think, is important. Um, uh, building robust networks that still drive. Um, uh, and by robust, I mean um, networks that are are tight enough um, that uh, if one line is down, so like, like for example in New York City, uh, they were able to do their fast track program of shutting down main lines during the week because um, you, you just go a block over and you know there's a there's a equally working line there. Uh, but how much does that cost in the in, in long run, especially in today's dollars, where uh, two billion dollars um, on the Second Avenue subway, the most expensive transit um, pro, uh, project being funded by the FTA today, um, barely buys you. Um, I believe what is it less than a mile worth of uh, worth of subway line. Something uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a cost differential that you the real that you really have to look at and and in the long run it really does end up costing less to to build a resilient system that is well maintained than to build a system that um, I don't know uh, that, that has a lot of these things and then and then you also go into um, some of the more environmental issues like uh um with with rising tides and rising sea levels uh, what does that mean for what does that mean for the northeast corridor uh, yeah, which runs along a um along a uh, coastal route um i mean uh in again going back to going back to the metro north accident over uh, that was due to um environmental causes the the de- degradation of the roadbed uh of the of the the rocks underneath and supporting the track uh you know is that is that something preventable would that would that um does that require i mean the northeast corridor is actually pretty redundant there's four tracks going on there so um well you know, yeah they're all they're all right <laughs> next to each other but yes there's right. four tracks right so um i mean there's that um but i mean in terms of yeah. in terms of you know of uh you know building good networks i mean one you know, one of the things that, that we always find them coming back to is the cost, and this is, right. um, you know, you, you talk about you talk about the, you know getting new train cars or your signals, or whatever, and it's like, you know, we're 
we, we need to get away from this politics of, of the short term. You know, everybody's worried about because everybody is, is starved for funding. Everybody's worried about, uh, you know, we got to balance the budget for this year and then we'll deal with next year when we get to next year. And we can't we can't think ahead. Um, and then there's also the aspect that, you know, everybody, no matter what transit improvement you you put out, somebody in some powerful position is going to decide, well, that costs too much. You know, do we really need that? And it's like, you know, I've always been saying, like, it's you know, not something I can, much? it's not something right. Like why you know why are we deciding that you know something costs too much you know if we're making an investment if we think it's a worthwhile investment then you know and if you're going to say it costs too much you know present me with opportunity cost here what am I missing out on because I'm spending money on this but yeah. you know don't just throw out there like oh that costs so much money it's you know two billion dollars and it's like well you know we're, we're a lot of people I mean that's like less than a penny per person so I mean you know yeah. Yeah. The op- well, opportunity cost isn't a very sexy phrase, um, but uh, I mean the the biggest the biggest issue is um, I, I think for the politicians who, um, who who hold the purse strings for these agencies. Uh, I mean the MTA is one of the biggest uh, the best examples where the the head of the MTA is a governor assigned position uh, appointed position um and uh at at some level the the MTA is a state agency um you know at what at what point is the governor going to be able to cancel a project because he can't cut a ribbon for it um i think it's i think it really is a function of of um what what can i cut ribbons for um, yeah. Well, you don't and, have to look much further. You know, if you if you want to talk about the effects of canceling projects, I mean, you don't want to, have to look much further than you know New York. We see you know Chris Christie with the with the Arc project that was going to be the you know double capacity under the tunnel to New York, and I mean that's like he comes in here and he's like, well, I don't want to you know, and how many years and and millions of dollars of planning was just like thrown down the drain. So right, well, because well, that was a that was a hugely political move because he thought that he could take that money. Well, in in particular, because of the uh, because it was partly being par- uh, funded by New Jersey and FTA funds, he thought that he could just take um, the. Uh, for, he wanted to make a political demonstration that um, New Jersey is a commuter haven, and we want to make sure that our roads are good. Um, and so he wanted to take that money from transit. The I think it was a five five hundred million dollars contribution from from New Jersey, and put that from transit to roads. Um, and the FTA wasn't going to have it. They said, "Well, we want we want our grant funding back. We are not only going to uh, stop stop the checks to you for this for this fun, this project, but we also want you to pay back every single grant that we gave you." Uh, and and uh, that ended up costing New Jersey more in the long run. Um, <laughs> So it's it's um, but but I mean that but the 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 cost the cost of that of of uh, of not doing that project doesn't make it into the papers. It makes it into say something like it, the Atlantic Cities or you know other other relatively liberal news media. But um, it it never really becomes this this headline thing that that makes it out there as say uh a recent uh a recent uh quote unquote accident uh where nobody actually got hurt in San Francisco on the Muni where a driver um who had to fix a stuck door on the side of the train ironically enough the train oh, yeah. was still in automatic mode and the train started going without him the train would have made it perfectly fine to the other station, but this is the sort of news that <laughs> the sensationalization that I feared for my life that uh, we weren't going to make it. Uh, you know, little quotes like that are, are more salient to the public 
um, because of uh, you can blame journalism or whatever, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's important for someone to ask the right questions and say, well, how do we get the public to care about this? How do we how do we spin this? Is this is this? And I think the answer is, um, is grassroots, making people care, and uh, you know, starting starting from starting from conversations like this where. Um, People have these public conversations and aren't afraid to ask the the, the meaningful questions, like, you know, why why yeah, what is the opportunity cost? What what why is this meaningful to me? Why why not just spend it on that road over there? Um, I mean, because not to, not to, not to be against roads. I mean, buses run on roads; <laughs> they're important. Um, <laughs> uh, they. But, Sorry, uh, I'm laughing because uh, I'm laughing because I, uh, you know, I, I, I love buses, but I, uh, you know, I, I don't think there should be roads for cars. But that's a whole other discussion, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I, mean, you, you, I know. Um, I guess I don't know. Are we done? Are we done on that that topic, or uh, we could shift gears? Um, sure. I know. You, I know you want to talk about uh, the some of the regulations, and I don't know yeah. if we if we touched on that at all. No. Um, so yeah, going back to the. The Metro North. Uh, well, touching back on that whole series of of events, like the Metro North accident, and then the uh, the original Cal, uh, not Caltrain, the uh, the original Southern California um, accident that that precipitated the the FRA um, mandate to have uh, positive train control. Um, these these. So there's the balance is um, there's two sides to safety in railroads, and I'm, we've, I think we already talked about how um, the design uh, the design scenario of a passenger train running head on at full speed into a freight train, um, like what happened in the 2008 accident, um, saved a lot of lives, but the accident still killed many. Um, but at the same time, uh, what is the other? What is the other side? And I think the Metro North side shows the other safety aspect of, you know, we can make it so that these trains don't crash, um, and uh, even even when another train isn't involved, um, there are speed restrictions. There are there are a number of things um, that can make a train derail by itself, um, and one of them is is a comprehensive safety system that can prevent trains from coming off the tracks or touching any other trains for that matter. Um, so, so where is that balance? And the F, I don't think the FRA mandate really does anything to resolve that. So I, I think uh, when I was talking to you earlier, I, I mentioned what is that balance? Um, can should the FRA mandate really should have in, really included um, the option to waive or even significantly reduce the weight requirement because that's that's what it is is the weight there's a weight requirement to these passenger vehicles to make sure that when they hit a head a freight train headlong they will not only um, stay relatively on track but will also not uh, jackknife and crumple and telescope where one side of a one shell of a train um, rides Hides over and around the shell of another train, and uh, basically killing everybody inside the train that went into the other one. So, um, I mean, these these are very important safety designs. It's like, it's like designing a car. Um, you you have crumple zones. You have all of these other safety devices. But the one big thing is that we build these trains like tanks. Um, I think my favorite quote um, about the Acela train set that was designed for the Northeast Corridor um, was that they were like, it was like a, um, a, a cannonball 
uh, um, on wheels. It was this fast moving, heavy machine um, that was way over engineered. Um, in fact, uh, ABB, the, electric, uh, the electrical engineering firm, brought over their uh, the Swiss Design X2000. Um, and actually, if you go on YouTube, there's plenty of videos of, of um, the X2000, the Swedish X2000, and the German ICE, uh, which originally also ran as a test on the Northeast Corridor, up and down the Northeast Corridor as this, as this tour thing back when they were looking for, for train stock, when Amtrak was looking at uh, the at the Acela program, which was originally called the American Flyer, um, that, uh, but eventually they ended up going with a consortium led by Bombardier, um, a major rail manufacturer um, out of Canada, to, um, or was it Alstom? I can't remember, but uh, one of those companies, they, they basically took the reins and they said, well, I guess we have to build this heavy train to be able to impact direct head-on a, a freight train. Um, which made the the machine completely unlike any other machine, any other high-speed train that has been built anywhere else in the world. Um, Because everywhere else in the world, TGV, ICE in Germany, um, the uh, the Javelin trains in uh, in England, um, the bullet, the famous, world-famous bullet trains in Japan, the um, Italian trains in, in Italy, the, the, currently the, the most advanced trains that have been uh, made by uh, that company, Alstom, um, they all depend on, uh, like, oh, actually, going back to the AVE uh, accident that happened in Spain, um, where that train, also going at high speed um, around a curve, happened because the driver had a lapse of judgment, but was also running on a piece of track that was not protected, as I was saying, these safety systems that ensure that trains stay on the rails and don't hit other trains. Um, and so far, they've had actually a spot, uh, pretty much a spotless record um, wherever they have these, these train protection systems. Um, generally, the umbrella of positive train control. Uh, but positive train control is an American term for these, these protective systems. Um, so, uh, in Europe, actually, the, uh, because of the fact that they have so many, a lot of these high-speed rail systems developed independent of, independently of each other, um, they had to come up with a way that they could all run on each other's tracks um, and communicate across each other's systems. So, a system called ECTS, um, European Train Control System, um, was developed, which is basically the European analog of PTC. Um, but basically, it's it's now almost the standard where uh, level one, um, level two, level three, where each increasing level has an increased level of automation with even less equipment that needs to be installed on the roadside. So um, instead of having just cables and cables and cables lined up next to the tracks, um, everything is wireless by 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 uh, each CTS level three. Um, and so it makes it in- inherently easier to, to, to implement and, and, uh, and to use. Uh, but the biggest barrier has been, um, well, frequency, specifically with the technologies, the wireless technologies um, that are used in ECTS uh, versus the frequencies that are actually available here in the U.S. for use. Um, out in, um, in particular, GSM. The GSM frequencies in the U.S. are different from that in in uh, the U.S., and that's why you have to have world phones and all that sort of stuff. But 
<laughs> Suffice to say, um, that is one of the biggest stumbling blocks, and I think I touched on uh, on ECTS um, when we talked earlier. Was that uh, um, this? It's this national. Sta- it is this. It is this international standard in the EU that is not only in the EU but is also spreading everywhere else in the world. Everybody else is adopting it. Um, China actually has a level of e- ECTS that they adopted called the uh, um, CTCS, Chinese Train Control System. That's um, very, very closely based on the ECTS. And the ECTS system is actually um, poised to become a, an international standard, an IC- ISO um, standard that can be um, uh, implemented just you know, like uh, like how A A four and letter sized paper are international standards. Um, you don't have to worry about oh, my paper has uh, my paper requires this this paper that IBM makes, but uh, you know I can't go to Lexmark because they don't make that size paper. So um, I mean that's like that's the sort of stuff that we're coming up against. So now basically in the U.S. we're reinventing the wheel with PTC instead of looking at how can we adapt um, ECTS. To what we what we need, what our needs are in the U.S. Um, and, and tapping, and therefore tapping into an existing market, we lose out on opportunity. We have huge opportunity costs that we that we have to pay for, um, that our agencies have to pay for. Um, having to buy, not being able to buy off the international market because um, uh, because of federal requirements is is it. Costs it costs a lot of extra money to do all of that engineering, all of the specifications, the the the, the extra testing, um, and and the the rounds and rounds of community input and uh, and not to say that community input isn't important, but engineering these machines from scratch every time is costly, and it means it means that trains that need to be on the rails yesterday can only come on the rails. Two, three, four, sometimes even you know five to six years after the original money is put down, when the need that they were purchased for has already since been met and exceeded. Um, so it's 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 a it's a huge issue of uh, of, of of timely orders uh, and 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 being able to say okay, well, um, I have. This amount of money. I have three mil- $300 million. What can you give me for that? Well, we can give you these standardized trains off our production line. Um, we'll give you, we can give you, you know, 500 of these. Um, but if you want to re-engineer them, um, we can deliver, and, you, and you're requiring that we buy, build them in the U.S. There's a Buy America requirement that requires that if there is a uh, 60% amount of um, manufacturing that happens here, um, if more than a hundred thousand dollars, that's as low as it is. That's the that's the that's the ceiling. That's that's the uh, ceiling for federal contribution to a project. If the federal government gives you more than a hundred thousand dollars, thousand dollars, Jesus, um, it's like I can barely buy a pen for a hundred thousand ex- dollars. Exactly days. right. <laughs> then then you must you must build. 60% of your production here. And so the, the, the objective, the reason why that came out of, I believe it was the 1970s or 80s, the reason why that legislation came about was because um, we had dying heavy industry, um, we were losing a lot of train manufacturers, and we've lost all of them today. Uh, the, but we continue holding on to this hope that we can reinvigorate it when our economy has very much clearly become a service and information uh, services and information economy. 
Um, not to say that it's not good. It's it's not to say that it's bad to have a diversified economy with multiple industries, um, but that's not our strong suit. And and it costs us more to build buses and trains and and an array of vehicles um, that uh, that must be built here. We don't do that for planes, though. We don't require that. Uh, actually, I think we might do. <laughs> I think we might actually for planes, but um, well, it's, I mean, it's just most of the stuff of this... that we go through. You know, we don't do that, and uh, it, it sort of reminds me of the you know the military thing, right? Where they're, where they're buying all these, you know, we're, we're still buying all these things that the military doesn't even want, and they're they're made like a, a little small component of it is made in like each of like forty eight states or something. So this way, like, right. nobody can get rid of it. Right, because because it's stimulating the economy. It's stimulating. It's growing jobs and jobs and 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 that's that's another thing is is um, not only not only how many how, not only can I cut a ribbon for this but how many jobs can I say this project created? Um, I mean, you know, not to not to not to laugh at that. I mean, it's it's a it's important that 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 jobs are. Uh, Stay here, uh, or, or that jobs are created, or that people have work to do. Um, but at what cost? Like, does that does that really have to ride on the backs of of transit agencies that already have to deal with regulations um, that, again, well intended regulations, but that, but are um, antiquated, haven't been reanalyzed, and um, really are 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 actually um, quite. Uh, Quite myopic in terms of, in terms like when you put it in perspective of the technologies that we have today, um, and and uh, the railroad industry has almost become completely technology technology averse to the point of uh, of of hurting the, the 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 smaller railroads that that need these need to be able to tap into these markets of of economies of scale where these were say like more Motorola builds um, you know just. ECTS devices, whereas like you have, you know, if you want a PTC device, now you have to go build a spec, and then you have to tell Motorola we need you to buy, the, we need you to build it this this way, and then because Motorola is the only company that can can build this design, they can also gouge you on those prices. Yeah, that's something we don't often think of, and I think um, at, at some level it's like if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna have all these requirements and you know all the the you know. The way that the way that the whole bidding process works, I mean, they you know they lay everything out and they customize everything. At some point, it's just like, why don't you just build it yourself? <laughs> you right, know, like why right, don't we just right. like have MTA just open up a facility and just build it themselves? You know, in, in New York right. or whatever. And that's uh, and that's the problem is that there there is no economy of scale for that. Um, but uh, spreading the wealth um, also doesn't really help lots of people. It's uh, it's it's a it's a it's it's purely it, in in many way in many respects it's a it's a almost a purely political requirement. Um, there is there is nothing that says that trains are inherently more safe because they're built in the U.S. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> there, it, there's no, there is no there is no um, uh, there is no reason there's nothing that shows that trains are are inherently more productive or uh, run run down less because they're built in the U.S. It's um, I mean, you might see people argue about that, argue that about cars, but I, you know, it all really comes down to engineering and how competent, how competent the the company is, and how many corners they have to cut. Yeah. In order to actually get this this commercial product available, whereas like uh, the, the the shell bodies that uh, that were built for the the New York City subway, um, the new cars um, that set a record for not only the <laughs> unfortunately the largest custom order. 
in the world for a transit uh, for a transit vehicle. Uh, they ordered enough transit vehicles for the subway um, to effectively in in volume in a volume that is usually only reserved for say off the shelf uh, components. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, going back to that, so so they they also set a record for. Um, for trains that uh, that have um, uh, what is it? I think uh, in their first year of, of use, um, they set a record for 1.2 billion miles, or no million, 1.2 million miles between failures. Um, and if you know anything about trains, usually they'll go between uh, you know 100,000 is really really good and that's where they sit today, but 100,000 to maybe 20,000 if you're really really running some real old equipment. Um, the orange line in Boston for example. Right, exactly. <laughs> like the trains that I ride on every single day these days. Um, so but I mean so actually that that comes to another point is is when you when you get standardization um, then you get something like what happened with the Orange Line uh, in Boston. The Orange Line cars are, are clo- uh, Orange Line cars are a close relative to the Blue Line cars, which are actually all which were both actually produced by um, Hawker and Sigley, um, who also produced the Path trains in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. The reason uh, the 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 reason why we got such a great deal on the Orange and Blue Line cars in Boston is because they piggybacked onto the order from from the Path. So once you get sort of things like that going, you can piggyback orders, and then you really can tap into economies of scale. But you can't do that. Yeah, but as, you know, you unlock that with a, on a, on the global scale by adjusting these regulations to be more in line with the realization that oh yes, not everything has to be reengineered from scratch. Yes, there are technologies that uh, that work really well. Um, not every agency needs to have its own. Uh, <laughs> type of door mechanism, um, <laughs> and uh, you know that, and then you and then you really tap into so like buses these days actually buses um, uh, in, at least in America um, the the top orders come from you know the basically three or four major companies, mm-hmm. but because those are vehicles that don't necessarily need to uh, adhere to these very very specific regulations, they can be. Built as standard standard machines with you know components that that can be changed in inside and out, uh, but are generally along the same product line and and the company benefits from economies of scale and and then that price gets um, gets passed on to its customers. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it's it's the transit transit agencies straddle this really really ugly line of um, government funding. Um, needing to buy private, um, private, uh, or from private companies because there's no such thing as a um, an Amtrak of of rail carriers, and that's really the, that's that's really going to be the uh, the only way that you could get um, a <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a company to actually legitimately stay here, um, other than say Kawasaki, who in New York State and they're from their base of operations, where they celebrated their their they just this year celebrated their 25 years of operation. Um, they continue to have orders because they also have um, some of the uh, the their best customers in the Northeast. So mm-hmm. it's um it, it, again it's yeah. co- economies of scale. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, one thing I, I, I want to go back to because we never really or we didn't really touch on this um, is is um, you know going back to the the collisions um, you know we talk about em- employee behavior 
And, um, you know, and I think the, the latest incident, I mean, the employee dozed off. And I, I, I do want to, I was thinking about the, the effects of, of sort of transit work environments and transit work shifts and everything. I mean, you know, most transit operators are, are working split shifts where, you know, you go and you work from like 6 to 9 a.m. or whatever. And then like, you know, 3 to 8 p.m. or something. And then you're, you know, you're not paid during the day and, you know, you're, so you, you, you're short on sleep, you know, you have, there are all these, it's a very stressful job. And I mean, I don't know if there's anything that, that we can or, or should think about doing to, to try to change that and maybe, you know, stop putting people in such stressful positions and, and might be easier to get better employees in that case too. Right. Right. Cause, uh, I mean, you, you, um, you were once a um, an, a an operations planner um, in in Boston, so I think you're you you have a a much more uh, much closer to the ground or closer to operations um, perspective on that. But uh, you know, at the same time, um, I I think I, I really think that it is important that uh, that that trans. I mean, these transit agencies and these these transit workers continuously. Um, Say safety first, safety first, safety first. But um, you know how far does that go? Yeah, is stress stress is uh, a factor uh, in safety. Um, how stressed a person is uh, can drastically, and, and how 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 sustained that stress is can drastically affect a person's performance and ability to make sound, reasonable judgments on the job, especially with these these drivers who are carrying. Um, tens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people at a time, um, and and being able to uh, being able to to hold them not only accountable but also to give them give them the good environment and the good workplace that they need to be able to uh, be happy people who carry who literally carry the economy. On their backs, they 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 literally move the economy. the 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 drivers are of our economy, um, the office workers, the the service people um, who work in our restaurants, and um, the these people need to get around. Uh, and they they make the GDP. Uh, they they make the GDP in the U.S., uh, especially in metropolitan areas. You know, as sustainable and and uh, and as high as it is. Uh, so without these 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 people, these uh, very important people to our society, um, uh, we obviously would not have a society. Uh, in fact, in, in many other European cultures, uh, I believe it's um, or actually in India, um, railroad drivers are very very um, highly regarded as as um, people in the uh, uh, the social castes. So. So going back to safety, how do we how do we improve these operations? I think, um, well, I mean, I, mean, I think um, that is a, that is a good question to be posed of um, of a transit agency. Like, how do how do you really deal with labor contracts? Um, is there a better way to have bus drivers run on continuous shifts? Is that is that something that can happen? I mean, I, I think the biggest reason why we have these broken up shifts is because um, of safety otherwise. Uh, you, well, I, I think, I mean, the whole thing is very complicated. And I, I think right. my theory on, on why split shifts came to be is just because, you know, you, you could, you know, if this were a private company, like you'd probably, you'd, you'd think about hiring people sort of part timers to do these things, do these, these shifts. 
right. but you know transit transit employees you know historically have have always wanted you know the stable job it's it's the kind of job that you know you invest a lot in and they invest a lot in you so it's it's the kind of thing where you're going to stick out your 20 30 years and you know people want that secure stable thing so right. you know, it gives a full-time job but right. maybe you know maybe we look at towards like the five or six hour shifts maybe that's like maybe we sort of change it up a little bit and that's that becomes, you know, you're working 30 hours or whatever, but you're making a full-time salary or something. I, I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's... And then, of course, the more employees you have, then, then the more you have to pay in, in benefits and everything else. And it's this goes beyond transit agencies. This is just, you know, transit oh. agencies alone can't tackle this. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a big HR, it's a big HR question. And then also a, a workplace, um, work, workplace hazard, uh, hazard question. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are known standards and limits to the... Uh, rather, there are known limits to the to the human human condition and human um, ability to pay attention over a sustained period of time. Um, you know, and these, yeah, how 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 this is this is actually this is the uh, the one solution uh, that we've come up with. It's obviously not the perfect solution, but yeah, maybe maybe six. Um, how how what is that difference? I guess uh, we'd have to we'd have to actually go into uh, into research in this, and, and unfortunately, I haven't looked that much into this myself. Is what is the effect of um, monotonous, uh, repetitive tasks um, over um, longer periods of time, and how does how does that affect job performance and or uh, I guess employee happiness and satisfaction? Um, Going from a four-hour shift, four-hour, uh, eight-hour split shift into two into two four-hour blocks versus simply a five or six-hour shift, um, and still providing, um, a, you know, a reasonable income that uh, that people can live on, um, and then also at the other end, being able, as you said, being able to actually run the transit agency and have money for other things. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean. Maybe we can look at um, maybe we can look at uh, to say manufacturing for example because that's 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 a that's a that's an occupation um, that also has a high level degree of um, monotony uh, that can that has been actually that has been changed over the years because of something like automation uh and automation is yet another and that's and that's a, that's another thing that kind of bleeds into the the safety technologies once you have that safety technology platform you can build upon that for automation and uh and i and i know unions don't like this and 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 it's and it's a very controversial for some reason a controversial topic of removing the human element element out of transportation because yes there are huge there are huge human costs um there uh for example here in the here in in boston on the green line um each car so so tra- trains are, cons- are are built up of trolleys individual trolleys usually there's two car trolleys and there has to be one person in each car in each trolley to um uh, to open the doors, um, announcements are for the most part uh, completely automated these days, mm-hmm. um, and they don't they don't do any fair collection. Maybe they'll guide the person at the box, but basically, um, you know, they're just there to open and close the doors and make sure and be there in case of emergency. When the when the green line when the MBTA wants to run three car trains in rush hour to relieve um, 
to because they can't make the trains run closer, the only the only other option to improve capacity is to make your trains longer. Um, running a three car train means you've had three people on a single train. Um, granted, the way that they're doing it is they're splitting up a single train into two uh, three car trains, so that way um, you have <laughs> which, three car. Yeah. <laughs> which defeats the any, any capacity argument, and I, I'm Ex- convinced it's a purely political move. <laughs> exactly, and I think that's why they've stopped doing it over the past year. I actually had a coworker at a social list uh, last night ask me that exact question: Why have I not seen three <laughs> <laughs> three car trains? Um, I I I explained it off as this: as that as the fact that. Um, with a three-car train, you've got three people, uh, two, one of them who's driving, and two of them are just sitting there opening and closing doors. Um, you know, and that's and that's um, that's a waste of their talent. That's a waste of their 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 human human talent um, and 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 manpower. Um, but that also means that that three car train, if 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 instead of splitting uh, a train, we had three car train consists um, built into the schedule, and we actually had more trains running in the in the day, that's one more person that the agency has to worry about paying that day. Uh, that's one more person that the agency has to hire. So, um, but then you go in the opposite direction, where uh, on the blue line, on the red line, and then going to, back to New York on the L train, they've eliminated conductors because the train can be automated uh, in such a way that um, the train only needs to be run by one human. But then you also get the argument. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I, think, go ahead. I was, was going to say, I think New York is the, the only remaining transit agency that are a subway provider in, in the U.S. That, that still runs has multiple people on, on a train. Because Boston was, I believe, the, the next last one. Yes, that's right. And we eliminated that on the orange and the red recently. So... Um, it, it much uh, somewhat to my chagrin because uh, you know I, I always made it a, a thing to to to, to stand uh, in the car behind the conductor or, or in front of so that way on the way out I could thank them because you know they 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 do a reasonable job and they're actually one of the most prominent visible people uh, on the subway system and in New York I see people go up to the conductor all the time asking questions about mm-hmm. this that and the other thing while he's also trying to do his job of operating the train making sure bags and purses aren't caught in the in the doors and making sure people aren't dragged down the platform um you know and and these have been cited as concerns you know with these automated trains are we going to have more people dragged down the platform well the truth is we have we have people get dragged down the platform with humans operating the trains looking back and forth. <laughs> I think uh, bef- shortly before the red line uh, lost its conductors, yes, there was a yes. woman who got pulled down the platform. Um, I don't know I don't know how it dif- differs in in Boston in terms of in terms of uh, conductor operation, but um, actually my favorite movie is uh, The Taking of Pelham 123, which involves the stealing of a, a number six train uh, going towards the, the Brooklyn Bridge, um, where in the movie they explain um, uh, through kind of cheesy plot uh, plot device uh, through the trainee uh, at the MTA that the conductor looks uh, up and down the train, closes one set of doors first and the other set of doors, then looks forward, then looks back, and then as the train's going forward... The conductor continues to look forward until half of the train is it until a quarter of the train is in front of him to make sure that he that nobody else um, is being dragged down the train so and down the platform so you know 
I don't know how that happened in Boston, but apparently the the conductor closed the window and the poor woman was stuck in the bag, uh, had her bag stuck. She didn't know when to let go, so she didn't. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she almost got ran into a wall until somebody pulled an emergency brake. In her defense, um, I believe it was the last train of the night. That's right, happened. yeah. So, so uh, you know, there's that. Um it's in case somebody is, yeah. is saying, you know, why would you why would you hold the door? Why would you hold well, on? Exactly. <laughs> circumstances, I suppose. If you if you can't if 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 uh, if the if it's if it means that the red line will take you to the last commuter train, well, I, I th- actually that that wouldn't even make sense because the last commuter <laughs> hey, you, train you, you, leaves at eleven eleven fifty. But yeah, so you got to so, get you know, home. You don't want to wait. You know, in Boston, it doesn't run all night. So yeah, exactly. So that's a whole uh, topic for a whole other discussion. Um, <laughs> yep, but I think state funding. <laughs> yep. But I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, unless you had anything else you wanted to, to add, throw in. Oh no, I mean just basically that uh, you know safety safety is a uh, safety is um, important and and uh, going back to that that human thing, it's uh, automation is ultimately going to be the future and. Um, a lot of agencies can't can't uh, can't jump on that that soon enough because the moment that you the moment that you get rid of of drivers um, you you save up on a lot of costs but you can also put those humans on the ground where they can be more effective as as people who are the face of the transit agency this this largely um, faceless agency that everybody thinks is out to get them so yes. higher and better <laughs> purpose <laughs> yes absolutely. So. Cool. Well, thanks to Mark Ibunia for joining me. Um, you can you should follow Mark at uh, check out his website uh, transitmatters.info. And uh, yep. he's I'm also on I'm also on Twitter as uh, Transit Matters. Excellent. Yes. So uh, I'll put links to those, and the people should go there. And uh, I I learned a lot from this conversation, and I I think that everybody else will have. So uh, send in feedback, and uh, and we will uh, we will discuss it. Um, so thank you, Mark. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Thanks again to Mark Ibunia for that exciting interview, the very informative. Um, I know I learned a lot, and I hope you did too, and um, I appreciate Mark coming on the show talking about transit, even though uh, that isn't really much of a, of a challenge for him. Uh, it's pretty easy to get him to talk about transit, but uh, I think we appreciate it nonetheless. Find out more about the show, as well as all of my work at criticaltransit.com. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Critical Transit, and check out my posts at streets.mn. We'll talk to you next week.